What's going on, ladies and gentlemen? Welcome to the first episode of year 2022 of the Speak On It podcast with K. Sam. Um, glad to be back with y'all, man. Hope everybody had a, a good and safe holidays. Happy New Year's to all my listeners and followers out there and all my platforms. Uh, here on the Speak On It podcast, I have a motto, and the motto is simply, we're not trying to change the entire world, but reach the heart of one person at a time. And with that being said, ladies and gentlemen, uh, this episode, I have a special guest joining me via Zoom all the way from California. Um, I'm going to let him introduce himself and kind of give what his bio is, uh, but he's a retired police sergeant out of uh, California, so on the West Coast. So I think we're about two hour difference right now from each other. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, welcome Sergeant Michael Serge, if I said that right. Uh, Sugru, but Sugru. it's all good. There, see? At least, at least I warned you that I was gonna probably get it wrong. <laughs> no worries, Suguru. So again, ladies and gentlemen, uh, Michael Suguru. Now that I, I got that correct, uh, Mike, man, thank you for joining the show. Uh, it was weird how we kind of connected via uh, the Facebook, and then I found you on LinkedIn, and uh, man, we had great conversations uh, here recently over over the time. And I just want to say thank you for uh, agreeing to come on on the episode and uh discuss some some things that that really needs to be uh needs to be discussed uh in these times so um you want to let let the listeners know a little bit about you uh your bio and stuff you can go ahead and have that floor yeah like you said i'm from the san francisco bay area originally i was uh, born and raised near oakland california uh, right out of college, I went into the military, into the Air Force, into what's called security forces, which is basically military police, anti-terrorism, air-based ground defense, uh, force protection. I did that for almost six and a half years. I actually got out of the Air Force as a captain, and I went straight into civilian law enforcement back here in the San Francisco Bay Area for a city called Walnut Creek. And I got out of the police academy December of 2004. And while I was in, I had a, had a bunch of different assignments. I was a field training officer, uh, in-house SIU detective, was also undercover on a state drug task force for the state of California, eventually promoted to sergeant and ran patrol teams on the street and had a public information officer duty on the side. And I ended up medically retiring back in 2018 for what I like to call post-traumatic stress injury versus disorder. And long story short, I was involved in a fatal shooting as a brand new sergeant a uh, day right after Christmas, end of 2012. And after many years of suffering and silence and almost losing it all, I eventually pulled myself out of the darkness. And that's why I'm here today is to talk about PTSI, and the suicide epidemic affecting not just law enforcement officers and our military, but all first responders for that matter. Uh, is that so? That shooting, and I'm sure we could we could get back. Uh, we could get into it a little bit deeper. But that shooting is that the story that you had posted? Uh, I guess a couple of weeks ago, sometime in December. Yeah, actually, um, the anniversary of the shooting came up. So the the shift started on the 26th. I work graveyard shift, and it happened at three in the morning on the 27th. So. You know, every year that the anniversary of this comes up, I do a post on on what happened and the details of it and the effect of it. Because, you know, most people I know that cops get it, first responders get it. But I don't think that most people out there listening understand the toll of an incident like this, what it what it takes on a person. And in my case, 
you know, it was a fully justified shooting. It was a subject with a butcher knife that was trying to kill a couple and then try to kill myself and my partners. And unfortunately, we had to take his life to save lives. And again, I mean, even with 100% righteous shooting, saving lives, the fact is I have to live with the fact that I took a human life. And that absolutely has taken a toll on everything. It's changed me as a person. And I ended up just suffering in silence for years. I mean, losing my marriage, eventually getting to the point where I didn't care if I lived or I died because I was too embarrassed and too ashamed to ask for help because that's the culture. That's the stigma is that, you know what? We can't admit that we need help. We can't admit that we're suffering. We got this uniform on, we got this badge on, you know, we got to pretend like we're invincible out there on the streets. But the fact is that we're human and not just shootings, but all these traumatic incidents that we see day in and day out, they take a toll on us. Right. Um, And I'm glad. And that's kind of the reason why uh, I felt I felt this episode was was much needed and and needed to be put out, at least on on my podcast. I'm sure they have various, uh, you know, police podcasts that, that probably spoke on this. But I personally uh, wrote this, I wrote bullet points and had my notes for this episode, but uh, I just didn't feel like I had the right, I just didn't want to do it by myself and just talk about it uh, because I really don't have no experience, um, you know, dealing with these type of things. And, um, and you know, God's been blessing me to where I, my uh, my mind, you know, the things that I I've, uh, dealt with in my seven years of law enforcement um, hasn't really had any personal effects on me. I, I do a good job of leaving work at work and not letting these traumatic deals uh, play a part in my, in my personal life. Um, but kind of going back to your, uh, while we talking about your shooting and the effects it had on you um, and you made a good point And I told this to people all the time. So we had, so I'm originally from uh, Louisiana and my old agency Lafayette Louisiana, they had a, a shooting not long after the George Floyd deal. So, you know, every everything was every incident that dealt with law enforcement and, of course, African-American uh, subjects was getting blown way out of proportion, uh, bigger than what it needed to be. Well, they had an incident where uh, they end up having to take the life of an African-American man uh, who was walking around with a knife and he ran from them, uh, you know, made verbal, uh, threats that he was going to stab the officer. I actually done a, a breakdown on that episode, uh, on that incident in one of my episodes, I think it was probably like episode seven is the Trayford Pellerin, uh, case that I broke down. I broke down how many times they gave him verbal commands and the things he said and what he done in the DA's investigation and state police investigation. But the, the, thing from that that everybody was stuck on was why why they had to shoot him and the the line in the sand for those three officers that fired their weapons were he was walking he's about to walk into another convenience store so he ran from one convenience store and he was about to walk into another convenience store and at that point when he grabbed the door to go in they decided that was that was the line in the sand and they fired and unfortunately they took his life and I was trying to tell people that in law enforcement, you have to sometimes take a life to save lives. And people just don't truly understand it. So I'm glad that you actually said it also 
to let you know my listeners know that I just I'm not the only one that says that and that's a true story and I gave plenty examples of of the what ifs you know what if that was your family in the store and he would have held everybody at knife point or took somebody hostage or your little boy in there while you outside pumping gas um but I agree with you people don't really understand the effects that it it has on on officers when they have to one pull the trigger and then especially if it results in taking a life um, some people just think cops wake up and go and do this and see how many people we could kill or just have it on their mind, just wanting to go out and kill people. And I just think that's just the most outrageous thing uh, that one could think about law enforcement. You know, the, the truth is we, we though, as law enforcement, we need to do a better job in educating the public to let them know just the kind of things that we have to see on de- and deal with. And then the split second decisions that we have to make. So, you know, for example, let's talk about shootings, police shootings. You know, most officers, 99% of officers are never involved in a fatal shooting. That is a fact. I mean, most officers never have to shoot someone. I mean, I've pulled my gun out hundreds of times, Mm -hmm. but I've only been in one fatal shooting. And like I said, if you watch the news and the media, you would think that officers are getting in shootings every single day because the problem is, yeah, they, they play a shooting on the news and it gets played over and over and over. But when you look at how many officers we have, the fact that we have hundreds of thousands of officers and you look at how many actual police shootings we have, there's a big difference in those numbers. And I don't think the general public understands that. I mean, my own father was, ended up retiring in Richmond, California, which is one of the most dangerous cities in Northern California. It used to be one of the most dangerous cities in the nation. And he never got involved in a fatal shooting. Interesting. I mean, most, most of my friends have never been involved in a fatal shooting and it's not something that we ever want to happen. You know, we train for it. We say we're prepared for it, but the, the truth is we're the last line of defense. When someone calls 911, we don't have a choice. We have to respond. I mean, we're it. If we don't respond, there's nothing else out there. Right. You yeah. know, and then the other thing is, too, we talked to this, you know, your incident that you're talking about. My incident involves knives. Most people don't realize that knives are more deadly than gunshot wounds. I've seen more people die out from stab wounds, a single stab wound. And I've seen people survive with multiple gunshot wounds. You know, most people also don't realize that our bulletproof vests, which are designed to stop handgun rounds, those do not stop knives. Knives can go straight through our vests. And and again, I don't expect the public to understand these things, but we got to do a better job and educate them and bring out this awareness of the real facts, of the real things that we have to deal with and the consequences. And that's what, that's kind of one of the the things that, um, that made me want to start this podcast. Uh, so I think it's about next month makes a year since I actually put out the first episode, but to start the year last year, I was in uh quarantine with COVID and just with all the, the law, you know, the, the stuff going on with law enforcement in the country, I asked myself, how can I make a difference? And then I, I realized, just like you said, uh, most people don't truly understand all the things that law enforcement deal with. 
and you ask your average person, hey, uh, what does what does a uh, a, a cop do, uh, do, whether it's an adult or a kid? And the two most common things you will get is take people to jail and write tickets. Um, and I was like, it goes, we have way more, you know, we wear way more hats than those two. And that's just not what all law enforcement is about. So that's what made me want to start this this podcast is to take the time to educate the community um, on what we do. And like you said, as law enforcement, yes, we need to do a better job of educating uh, and taking the time and be willing to speak on these things uh, with the public because you have officers who just really don't want to talk about it or they're scared they're going to say the wrong thing and get in trouble and stuff like that. And, and you know, we we have to be willing to to have these these open and, and truthful, transparent conversations uh, with with the community because uh, at the end of the day, we are who we serve in them and, and they have every right to understand, at least try to understand what we do on a day-in and day-out basis. So Absolutely. And, you know, the facts are that we go out there every single day putting our lives on the line for complete strangers, knowing that there is a chance that we're not going to make it back home to our spouses, to our children, to our loved ones. But yet we're still willing to literally risk our lives every single day for complete strangers. And that's what I want people to understand that 99.9% of police officers are doing it for the right reason, because we care because we want to make a difference. There is a bad percentage of officers and they need to be removed from the force and they need to be prosecuted to the fullest. But the facts are that 99.9% of officers, like I said, are doing the right things for the right reasons. And we truly care. Yeah. Um, and the, you always get the the rebuttal of, of what you just said of, you know, not us, not make, not sure that we're going to make it back home to our families. And it's sad that, the rebuttal that we get as law enforcement officers when something uh, traumatic happened is, well, you knew what you signed up for. <laughs> and it's just, it's just mind blown. And it's like, yeah, we knew, we know what we signed up for. Doesn't mean that it's right that it happens to us. Um, so, but kind of getting into the, the mental health uh, aspect of, of this episode um, I just kind of want to just touch base on what made me write this episode and then um, we'll kind of dive into some uh, some some bullet points that I have. So just kind of do the backstory. Um, I think it was probably last year or maybe year before last where they had an officer, a sheriff's deputy in Louisiana um, in Lafayette Parish Sheriff's Office who committed suicide while he was on duty. He was a school resource officer um, and he went to school doing his normal duties, and then he ended up leaving school in the middle of school hours and drove himself down to their uh, headquarters and committed suicide in his uh, Mark's patrol unit in the parking lot while he had coworkers outside. Um, and right before he committed, he committed this act, he released a couple YouTube videos, pretty much his suicide notes and some stuff on his Instagram and stuff like that kind of stating his frustration and why he done it and listening to his reasons. I was like, man, that's, you know, that's true. And some of the, the things he, I took from it was about the mental health of it, how, um, how nobody checks on the mental health of officers throughout their career. 
Um, so I, this is my second agency here in North Texas that I'm that I'm uh, that I worked for, and out of my seven years, I only had two psych exams, um, and I had more. You know, I faced more traumatic incidences working in Louisiana versus that I uh, that I faced here so far. But at no point did nobody checked on my mental status. You know, from looking at shootings and and uh, traumatic things involving infants and juveniles and, and, and stuff like that. And I think, and when he said that, I was like, that is a big deal. Um, and that's something that needs to, that needs to be checked and, and corrected because there ain't no way that somebody should go through a 25 to 30 year law enforcement career and only have one, one uh, psych exam. Well, you know, the, the facts are that as law enforcement officers, we're much more likely to die by our own hands than the hands of another person. I mean, think about that for a second. We literally spend hundreds of hours training on firearms, defensive tactics, arrest and control techniques, you know, driving, pursuit driving, but we don't train at all on how to preserve our mental health. We don't talk about it. We don't train on it, yet we train on all these other things. And if we look at the numbers, so we just started 2021, or sorry, 2022, mm-hmm. and we already have six suicides in the U.S. as of today. Last year, we had 150 reported suicides. The year before that, 177. If I take it a step further and I go back to 2016, We've had over a thousand U.S. law enforcement suicides since then. Wow. And, and these are the reported numbers. I assure you, the real numbers are much, much higher. Right. <laughs> and I, I, I said it in a, uh, in a previous episode of why, why don't some of these numbers, actual suicides, get reported? And from what I always understood is, insurance purposes you know uh apparently i guess insurance don't doesn't cover uh suicides and stuff so when you're dealing with law enforcement stuff most cases when suicides are when law enforcement when suicide is what it was clear a suicide but it gets reported as an accidental death um and it's some along the lines of a, a, a ad with cleaning the firearm well a- as an example You know, let's say an officer's on a traffic stop on the side of the highway Mm -hmm. and he's going through rough times and he or she decides to take a step backwards in the traffic gets hit by a car. Well, that's a tragic accident. I mean, no one's going to even know that's a suicide. What about the officer? And we hear about these all the time that get into the solo vehicle crash into a sound wall, into a tree. You know, was it an accident or was it a suicide? And I'm not here to say either way, but I want you to stop and think about that because I myself got to the point where I didn't care anymore. I put my officer safety aside, hoping I died in the line of duty, because as an officer, if you die in the line of duty, your family's taken care of. Right. You know, you're forever remembered. I mean, statues are erected. Roads are named after you. You know, you're not forgotten about. Right. But if you commit suicide you know, you are forgotten about, you know, people don't talk about that. People are ashamed. And that's the thing is, you know, how many of our line of duty deaths are actually suicides? And the answer is, I don't know, 
But I guarantee you some of those line of duty deaths are actually suicides. So while while we on the topic, uh, you want to kind of get a little bit deeper into your story and and let the listeners know, you know, coming from an actual uh, retired law enforcement officer, just kind of like you said, show the human side of it um, from your personal experience on, on kind of what you was going through from your fatal shooting. So when I got my shooting, I had been on the civilian side for about eight years. And up to that point, I'd seen child deaths. I'd seen tons of suicides. I mean, literally why I show up, the gun is still smoking. I've been at tons and tons of natural deaths. I've been to homicides. I've seen, you know, child deaths, child abuse. I mean, just hundreds of traumatic incidents. And there was an incident where I actually almost shot somebody who was running away from me that was reaching for a gun in their waistband. And that incident, I remember, took absolute toll on me. But the breaking point was the shooting. It wasn't the fact that the shooting alone pushed me over the edge. It was the fact of hundreds of traumatic incidents that I didn't talk about, I didn't address, and that shooting pushed me over the edge. And I remember that morning when I finally came home after being up for over 24 hours and going through multiple interviews, and I saw my wife and my young daughter at the time, and I I was completely numb. I felt completely detached. I just wanted to isolate. I wanted to sleep. I wanted to hope that this was some nightmare that was just going to go away. Mm -hmm. I started drinking more, just drinking myself to sleep every single night. I mean, it really got to the point where my marriage started having major, major issues. Months and months after my shooting, we had what was called a coroner's inquest in my county. And that is a court proceeding where there's a judge, there's a jury, it's open to the public. And they have this anytime law enforcement is present and there's a death. For example, if somebody hangs themselves in a jail setting, they die. If there's a police pursuit, a car crashes, innocent person gets killed, or like in my case, a police shooting. So I had this, this courtroom experience. I remember sitting there before I testified and they started playing the dispatch tapes from that night. And it immediately brought me right back to that night. I started sweating profusely. My stomach started turning. I literally felt like I was going to pass out. I get called up to the stand and I'm testifying in this courtroom. I mean, There's like 20, 30 people from my agency, my wife at the time, all the family members of the man who tried to kill me with a knife. I didn't mention he had an identical twin brother. He was there. And I'm on the stand explaining, going through what happened. I ended up breaking down in this courtroom filled with like 60, 70 people just bawling like a baby. And I was so ashamed and so embarrassed that I... The judge, he eventually excused me. And I left the courtroom for a few minutes to get my stuff together, splashed some water in my face, ended up going back to the courtroom, and we finished the proceeding. My officers did great. A couple weeks later, I get called into an administrative office, and I thought this was going to be a good meeting. I was literally a brand-new sergeant. You know, we got in a shooting. We saved lives, and this just didn't happen in my city. I mean, the last shooting before mine was like 12 14 years earlier. As soon as I walked into that room, I could see the whole demeanor was totally different. And it was very serious. And I immediately sat down, sat straight up. Remember I'm military days, hands on my lap saying, yes, sir. No, sir. And a couple key things happened in this meeting. That's why I mentioned the story. 
is the first thing they did was they questioned the genuineness of my emotions. They both said directly and inferred that I was acting or putting on a show for the jury. Wow. I mean, can, can you imagine like here I am a former air force SF captain, undercover narc police sergeant. Don't cry in front of anybody. I don't ever break down emotionally and it happened and I was ashamed. And now my quote unquote blue family, my admin is literally questioning my integrity. Wow. And then they question my leadership ability. And up to this point, my career had been off the charts. I mean, I had a path to be chief someday. I was literally getting every assignment I wanted, leading every team I was on. And now all of a sudden, everything's being put into question. But here's where I messed up. And that's why I mentioned the story is I just sat there, said, yes, sir. No, sir. I sucked it up and I made a conscious decision that I was never going to show emotion again. I was going to prove them wrong. I was going to get through this and press on with my life. And so I became a real asshole on duty and off duty. If people came to me with their problems, I just didn't care. I had no sympathy. I had no empathy. I became the polar opposite of someone who was being human and showing emotion, showing feelings. But that was the worst thing I could do. I ended up losing my marriage. I ended up getting diagnosed repeatedly with skin cancer. I didn't mention that we were sued immediately by the family civilly. I endured four years of a federal lawsuit going through depositions every single year, having to relive the shooting with the father of the man that tried to kill me sitting directly across the table from me. And the breaking point was this. As I mentioned earlier, I started purposely putting myself in dangerous situations, hoping I died in the line of duty. I ended up going to trial in San Francisco, federal court, one of the worst places you can imagine of being on trial, San Francisco, California. I endured two weeks of a civil lawsuit and we ended up winning. We prevailed that lawsuit. But I magically thought when that lawsuit was over that my life would go back to normal. All my problems would disappear. But they actually got much, much worse. And a couple weeks after that trial ended, my best friend, a Vietnam veteran and a 35-year reserve officer with my department, he tried to kill himself when I was on duty as the day shift sergeant. Wow. And I remember getting to the hospital as the ambulance showed up. He was covered in blood. He had slit both wrists, stabbed himself in the torso multiple times, OD'd on prescription medication. I didn't think he was going to make it, but thank God he did. He's alive. He's here today. But about a month after that is when I finally mustered the strength and courage to ask for help. After four years of suffering and almost losing it all, I finally raised my hand and asked for help. And that saved my life. Oh, that, that I'm, I'm actually speechless. <laughs> uh, I mean, and, and good for you to, like you said, muster up the courage to, to speak out and say, Hey, I need help. Um, but it's reasons just exactly like your story of why officers still to this day, just rather, 
deal with this battle on their own versus reaching out for help. Because when, like you said, you're supposed to be your your blue family to have your back and, and be there for you like family should, but then yet they're the ones that was questioning your integrity and everything that you went through. Um, I, I, I said this, I said this uh, on, a, on, on a previous episode that I interviewed one of my classmates and we were talking about how, you know, law enforcement stick together and how he's not really shocked or surprised how law enforcement stick up for each other uh, on these on these shootings and incidences that, that have been taking place and how the, the blue code and this and this. And I was like, look, I said, I'll tell you this for a fact. I said, yes, people talk about, you know, brotherhood, sisterhood, bag the blue and stuff like that. I said, but it's your own coworkers. They'll be quicker to stab you in your back and screw you over versus versus anybody else. And that and that's sad that you know he's supposed to be this this uh, tight knit group and 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 uh, and and community in law enforcement, but yet they are the ones that questions your integrity or talking bad behind your back uh, or painting you out to be the bad person. And I, I kind of experienced that a couple of times uh, in my in my short career. And now I'm kind of like at a point where I just rather not have those work friends especially outside of work because now you kind of get into my personal life and and i just rather not fool with you and just keep you as a co-worker and i'll be cordial with you at work but then after our shift is over and you know we made sure everybody went home safe then i go back and i do my own thing and you know we'll just stay co-workers and not friends where we you know know each other family inside and out and have that relationship like like a true family supposed to you know um but that that's that's a crazy story. Um, but leading into that, that that's one of the most common things is, is officers are afraid to make, to make an outcry for help. So what kind of advice that you could, uh, and not, and not just for law enforcement, but just for anybody struggling with, uh, with any, any type of, uh, you know, suicide, uh, ideations or whatever, what kind of advice you would give to to the next person that you felt that that would help them out just to ask for that help, just to get them over that 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 ledge to ask for help? You know, I was at the height of my struggles. All I could think about was that I was completely alone, that there wasn't anybody that I knew personally in my agency that would understand what I was going through, that they wouldn't get it, that they would judge me, that would look down upon me. And I couldn't have been further from the truth because I can tell you right now that when I finally asked for help and I got connected to the right resources, I learned immediately that I wasn't alone, that all my brothers and sisters, my firefighters, paramedics, dispatchers, police officers, they were all suffering just like I was. And I started meeting people that came out the other side. Like I am now, you know, this takes a lot of work. It takes patience. It takes dedication. I mean, there's not a simple one thing you can do and all of a sudden you're better. You know, in my case, I waited far too long to ask for help. If you address these things as they're happening, if you talk about these traumatic incidents after they happen, you know, as soon as things are safe and they've calmed down, that's when you need to do it. You know, I waited almost too long to the point where I wouldn't be here anymore. All right. And for those out there listening, I assure you, 
you are not alone. There are so many others just like you who are suffering in silence. But I'm living proof that there is a whole new life on the other side. My life now is better than it ever has been. Outstanding. So let me see. I, I had something that I wanted to that I wanted to get with. Um so so like you said, you, you dealt with that for, for you know way too long by yourself. So and, and I know out, out here uh in, in my agency they have I mean I am pretty sure they have it all over the country where they have uh, first responders, you know, suicide hotlines or, or just little things where you could call and be anonymous. Um, and you have people on the other side of that, that phone line that, like you said, that, that dealt with the things that, that somebody may be struggling with or, um, you know, be going through the same situations. So, um, again, how can we, how can we change that st- this this outlook to where it would stop people from from being so ashamed to want to ask for help um it's you know do you, do you think it's something that we could do better within departments um or or is that something that we could change you know on the national on the national level so we got to change the culture and honestly it starts in the police academy it starts in the in the training academy you know as i mentioned earlier when i went through the police academy We had 880 hours of California post-certified training that we had to do. It was mandated. All different areas, you know, the law, arrest and control techniques, defensive tactics, shooting, driving. But there wasn't any time dedicated to having people like me go to the academy, open up and share these personal experiences of the toll of the job. That's where it needs to start. And from there, we need to bring it into the training programs. When our recruits are in the FTO program, the field training program, that's when our training officers, when they debrief calls, we need to talk about the human side of the call. You know, I remember I was a field training officer, and obviously I went through field training. I remember after every call, you know, we'd clear the scene, we'd go back and we'd talk about it. We'd talk about tactics, we'd talk about officer safety, we would talk about the laws, we would talk about how are we going to document this in the report, how we're going to write it up. But we didn't talk about the human side. We didn't talk about how effed up was that scene with that fatal car crash or that suicide. That's what we need to do. We need to normalize this at all levels. We need to have the leaders within our agencies, starting at the sergeant level all the way up. They need to be open. They need to be transparent. They need to talk about their human experiences. You know, whether it's in lineup before the shift starts, maybe the team had a messed up call the day before, and we talk about that, we debrief that before we hit the streets. Or maybe it's during annual training when the actual chief of police, you know, in the room full of all the officers shows the human side, not just the chief side, but the human side, because we're all human. I don't care what your rank is. I don't care what agency you work for. This stuff takes a toll. And we need to talk about it. We need to normalize it. That's how we do it. And and like you said, on these calls is when, or after the calls, when everything is, is calmed down, is when these conversations uh, should happen. Now, I know in my last agency, they had a, a team, uh, but it was just more so for after shootings that it was it was used for, which obviously, obviously involved shootings didn't happen that often. 
but it was a team that would get together and do a big debrief on on the incident that that took place and make sure everybody was good uh you know try to give everybody the chance to open up but in in our line of work you know not just law enforcement but you know paramedics and firefighters we have this 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 uh sense of humor if i if i'll call it that that we that we use to cover up our emotions to where we don't have to talk about you know how mangled up this body was in this fatal or you know how disgusting this this dead body was from the suicide where they blew their face off you know we we tend to start talking about man you know what are we going to eat after this just so we could try to get get away from you know get our mind far away from what the reality actually is during that moment um and i think that's also a, a big deal and i i couldn't agree with you uh anymore that that these conversations need to start happening like you said in the police academy and let them know uh what what the real deal is and what to kind of expect and it doesn't happen to everybody because uh, like i said uh I'm, I'm i'm blessed and fortunate that i do a pretty good job of leaving work at work and and not uh letting the things that i deal with at work i try not to put my my emotions and my feelings into my job uh if that makes sense um so kind of going going uh transitioning to to your incident going back to your incident with your fatal shooting when you was in the courtroom um one of the big issues i have with what what's going on today with all the the law enforcement officers going to trial uh for these these fatal shootings is i i never see where nobody checks the status of the officer you know like before the incident during the incident or after the incident you know but when suspects commit commit um you know a shooting against law enforcement it takes years and years where where they fight just to see if they're sane enough to withstand trial and i and i i thought about this because when i was in louisiana in 2017 uh we had one of one of our officers uh killed in the line of duty he was shot on a uh, on an incident that he was investigating and so 3 years later and they are still fighting the the battle of if the suspect is sane to withstand trial. And I think it's just absolutely insane that these people get so so much time and 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 get prolonged trials just to prove their their uh sanity. But law enforcement like um what's her name? Kim Porter, her trials already said and done from from the Dante Wright shooting. Um, and, and from the, the brief things that I watched on that trial, nobody never questioned her, her mental status, you know, the weeks or months before, before this, this traumatic incident happened, um, uh, nor her mental status during, during the shooting. You get what I'm saying? Does if that make sense? You know, I do. And, um, you know, I don't know all the facts and circumstances of that particular case, but I can tell you what I do know about that incident was it was a tragic mistake. And, you know, a life was lost. That That's true. And it was involuntary manslaughter, but it wasn't what she got convicted of. She didn't intend to kill that young man. Right. You know, that whole situation is horrible. It's tragic. I mean, you know, multiple lives were affected forever and a life was lost. And I'm not saying or justifying that, but like you said, I think people were just quick to condemn and convict her and make her this evil person 
you know, when that's not the facts. The facts are is that she's been doing this job for 20-plus years, and it was a very chaotic scene with multiple things going on, and the average citizen will not understand that unless they're placed in that type of situation. And we as police officers are placed in those situations all the time. Right. And things change. Things are happening. And split-second decisions are having to be made. You know? And that's what I'm talking about is the toll of this job. And that shooting, that life lost is going to affect her every single day of her life until she dies. Yeah. And that's what, that's like you said, people, that's what your average citizen uh, don't understand is that they have to live with that. You know, the last thing any law enforcement officer want to do is, is take a life. But yes, we train for it. We mentally prepare for it and do all these things uh, with still the hope that we never have to do that uh, throughout, throughout our career. Uh, and unfortunately, not everybody is is, is fortunate to uh, to make it, you know, through re- uh, up until retirement without having to uh, even pull the trigger. Whether you you fatally kill whether you kill somebody or not, just the simple fact of you know nobody wants to to be behind that deal because whether you kill somebody or not, you still have to answer for that. And I'm sure they're gonna have court proceedings and and all kind of other stuff. Uh, just like the incident uh, was it in. Los Angeles with the Burlington, uh, the Burlington, uh, code factory incident. Oh my God. It's so tragic. So An- tragic. Another, another tragic incident where, you know, they're doing their job, but now you have, uh, people just because of the, the, you know, the tragic incident with the 14 year old, uh, you know, being in the, in the backdrop in the line of fire and, and, you know, tragically dying, but now they trying to they trying to attack the officer. At least from what I see, I never really I never seen much came uh, come up of it here lately. Besides the one time when you had uh, Ben Crump with the family doing a press conference, um, but just just those incidences are, are so tragic, and it takes such a toll. Like you said, we have to live with that for the rest of our lives, whether it was justified or not justified. Uh, we still have to live with that, and eventually, I'm sure it would start taking a mental a mental toll on you, just like just like your uh, your example. You know, and the thing about the case you just mentioned was the officers didn't even see that young lady because she was hiding in a dressing room that was behind the wall. But when you watch the news and you watch the TV, you would think that this officer purposely executed that young girl, mm-hmm. and that's not the case. The facts are a bullet ricocheted off the ground or some other object and went through that wall and unfortunately killed that young lady. And it is horrifying. It's absolutely tragic. But to sit there and say that this officer did that intentionally, that they meant to do that, that they wanted to do that. And now, like you said, that officer has to live with that the rest of their life. Super tragic. Uh, Another incident I wanted to bring up, uh, I, I saw you mention it. Uh, and just just talking about the the traumatic deal of it, or well, it's two incidences, uh, but this one specifically I, I saw on your LinkedIn was the North Carolina troopers, the two brothers, uh, where where one was on a traffic stop and the other one was coming to back him up and end up losing control of his uh, squad car and end up killing his brother and the detained driver um, that he had outside the car. And I couldn't not imagine 
the the traumatic deal uh stuff he's going to deal with knowing that he took his brother life in in an incident like that and, and again you know and the first thing i could think of is my god i hope this officer that survived doesn't kill himself because just the the tragic i mean could you imagine killing your own brother and then killing an innocent civilian? I mean, that was an accident. I'm not justifying anything here, but I'm saying that was a horrific accident. But if you look at the media, if you look at these comments people are making, they're making fun, they're making jokes. This is nothing to laugh about. I mean, that surviving officer will never work again, will deal and suffer for the rest of his life. Again, a horrible tragic situation we need to look at and know the difference between intentional homicide intentional bad behavior intentional corrupt officers versus tragic mistakes yeah we're human i mean i don't care if you're an officer you're a civilian on the street we're all human we all make mistakes yeah um I forgot the, the the sheriff out of Florida um, with the 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 agency where the um, I don't know if they were husband or wife or they just shared the kid together. But the two deputies that one tried to commit suicide on New Year's Eve and he was on life support. And then after they took him off of life support, the mother of his child, their what, one month, one month child, one month old child. Then she committed suicide based off of his his tragic incident. Um, but that that sheriff's deputy, uh, that sheriff, he made a good point. And, and what I took from that is he want to he want to make it known that these officers, you know, us as officers are human, that we still have personal stuff that we deal with outside of work. And, and it's asking a lot out of law enforcement for us to go and put our personal life aside for 12 hours or however long uh, your, your given shift is. And try to try to be um, a superhero in, in some people's eyes and deal with everybody else's problems and solve everybody else's problems, whether it's parenting or um, or you trying to be a marriage counselor or, you know, you just trying to be a, a good officer and, and help somebody change a flat tire. Whatever the case is, there's so many different hats that we wear as law enforcement that your average citizen don't know. And. And it takes a lot eventually, um, more so when you're dealing with shootings. And then after you clear the shooting scene, well, now you got to go uh, try to help be a, be a parent because somebody is having trouble discipline or, or handling their, their child. Then from there, you may go do a traffic stop. Uh, so it's, it's just such an emotional roller coaster that, that we go through in a given shift. And then after it's all said and done, after you put in your time on duty, now you have to come back home and, and fight your own battles. Whether you having trouble in your marriage or you having trouble with your own kids or finances or whatever the case is, it just it, it takes a lot from law enforcement. And just think, you know, you going through this or you may be going through this for twenty five to thirty years of this emotional roller coaster every day of your, of your life. Exactly. And you know, we're supposed to be on the street handling these most heinous, most horrific, tragic calls. And the second we walk in our door at home, we're expected to be these loving, caring, fully present spouses or partners. Yet 
where's the time to decompress yeah. from that? You know, you mentioned the 12 hour shift, but as you know, a lot of times those 12 hour shifts turn into 16, 17 hour shifts mm-hmm. and forced overtime and night shifts and missing holidays and all these other stresses, COVID. I mean, everything combined on top of that, along with, yes, the normal family personal problems, you know, and, and some of those are addiction, they're alcoholism. I mean, all these things that anybody listening to this episode, it affects us all. You know, we're not superheroes. We're not invincible as much as we think we are because we put that badge and uniform on. We're human just like everybody else. And we got to deal with the same stuff. Uh, So try to start wrapping this up here shortly. So uh, I just want to kind of get back into a little bit more about yourself uh, based off of your your bio that I have. Uh, so you're a national speaker now and you're a mental health advocate based off of from your from your experiences. Absolutely. So I actually just finished my first book. It was co-written with a psychologist. Her name is Dr. Shauna Springer, also known as Doc Springer. And it's called Relentless Courage, Winning the Battle Against Frontline Trauma. It's not out yet. We're actually editing it, but the book is done. And this book is going to absolutely save lives. And so what I do now is I speak across the country at annual law enforcement training conferences, at police departments. I've spoken to the California National Guard, and I share my full undisclosed personal story in the hopes that the people out there suffering in silence, that they're going to see they're not alone, that they can learn from the mistakes I made because I made so many mistakes that almost cost my life. And so now I'm dedicated to giving back and trying to help save our first responders. Nice. Uh, how would people be able, when, once the book uh, is released, how would people be able to uh, purchase the book or find the book? It is going to be on Amazon. And uh, when we get closer, I'm definitely going to have all the pre-order information available. But the best way to keep up with me and keep up with the book is either on LinkedIn to go to my profile there. I'm on there every single day. You can send me messages. I'll be posting updates on the book. But I also run uh, two pages, both on Facebook and Instagram. The first one is called First Responders First. Again, First Responders First. And the second one is Sergeant Michael Sugru. And I will have updates on all those pages. Uh, But we're probably, you know, a couple months out before release. But it's going to be absolutely life-saving outstanding outstanding so for all and and it's just you just wouldn't recommend this book just for first responders anybody could uh this would save anybody life whether you first responder or civilian right absolutely here's the beauty of the book so to go a little bit more into the format there's 15 chapters it goes all the way back to my childhood till present day where i talk about different traumatic incidents why i talk about why i chose this job in the first place when i talk about administrative betrayal And when that blue family turns their back on you, well, my co-author, Doc Springer, she's a psychologist who's worked with military combat veterans and first responders most her career. She is actually going to have a second half of every single chapter where she breaks it all down. She explains it in a general sense so that anybody on the street that picks up this book, they're going to understand the human side of the badge whether you're a firefighter, a paramedic, a dispatcher, a police officer, a military veteran, I mean, a nurse, you know, anybody on the front lines, 
you're going to be able to read this book and you're going to be able to learn not just from my personal experience, but from a psychologist who's going to break it all down and explain it so that everybody will understand it. Nice. Sounds like a good book. And uh, I'll make sure I definitely get a copy. I, my my new goal for 2022 is to try to get more involved in, in reading books and, and use my time more more wisely. Uh, so I'll make sure I put that uh on my on my one of my books to to read for this year. So uh Mike, any closing remarks that you want to give the listeners um that you feel that that they could take away from this episode or or could use that would help change their life before we get out of here? Just one thing, and that's if you're out there suffering, you're not alone. And more importantly, there is help, there is hope, and there's a whole new life on the other side. Just please raise your hand and ask for help. Well, Mike, ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Mike Suru, thank you for tuning in. Uh, thank you for joining the show and and discussing and, and being so open and transparent uh, about about your story. And hopefully, this episode could reach could reach millions and and help start changing the uh, start turning people's lives around. Uh, you know, and, and it goes into my my motto. You know, not trying to change the entire world, but hopefully change the heart of one person at a time. And hopefully, uh, that just becomes a chain reaction. So, but ladies and gentlemen, thank you for joining. Uh, thank you for tuning in to speak on the podcast. Another episode with K Sam. Uh, we'll see y'all next time.